This is the Morning Rush. Coming up on today's show, one half of the Final Four is set. We'll look back at last night's action and look at tonight's games. We'll look at the night in high school hoops and soccer, some drama involving both the Hampshire boys and girls teams. Another non-call swings the outcome of a tournament game, this time uh, in the women's tournament. And my, oh my, how things have changed in 50 years. All that and more coming up in the next two hours of today's show. Good morning to you. How the heck are you? So glad to have you on board. So glad you could take some time to tune in and hang out as we kick off yet another essential work day. Several ways to get involved on the show, as always. Hit me up on Twitter at ESPN Morning Rush or at Rush Tony C. Leave me a message. Check out our Facebook page at Cumberland's ESPN Radio. Taking your calls on the rush line, 301-759-2628. Your chance to dial and dance, shamo, 301-759-2628. And, of course, our podcast page on the free Podbean app, where we upload every show, every day, minus commercials. So if you want to go back and... Just check out things we've talked about previously. It's all there. Every single show. All right. Let's kick off today's show as we kick off every show with a jam-packed rock around the region. I want to rock! And we start with boys high school basketball. I mentioned some drama. Drew Keckley sank a pair of free throws with two seconds left to give Hampshire a 60-58 to win over Moorfield last night. Elsewhere, it was Harmon over Union, 52-43. On the girls' side, more drama. Alexis Shoemaker hit a three-pointer at the buzzer to give Kaiser a 40-39 win over Hampshire in a split of the season series. Gracie Fields had 14 points for the Trojans. Elsewhere, Pocahontas County beat East Hardy 38-27. Musselman beat Washington 45-32. Preston was 10 better than Robert C. Bird 51-41. And Spring Mills rolled over Hedgesville 86-36. In boys high school soccer, Jacob Ritchie scored a pair of goals, one in the first half, one in the second half. As Mountain Ridge blanked Allegheny 2-0, Ethan Ashenfelter stopped all three shots he faced for the shutout. Mountain Ridge girls completed the sweep with a 1-0 win over the campers. Sidney Snyder scored the only goal of the game for the Miners. Mountain Ridge led in shots 10-1. In high school football, this news uh, coming down yesterday after I was uh, out of here. This Thursday afternoon's game between Fort Hill and Mountain Ridge at the Ridge has been canceled. Due to a COVID issue, uh, the game will not be made up. 
In the NBA, Russell Westbrook made some history last night for the Wizards. Fourth quarter, what a game we have at Capital One Arena. Nobody moves. Westbrook, 10 on the clock, shoots a three. It's there. Oh, my. Oh, it's there. (laughs) I love that guy. Calling the Federal News Radio. It's not the Federal News Radio. It's just Federal News. Anyway, 132-124 the final. The Wizards get the win over the Pacers, and Westbrook gets his 16th triple-double of the season. Look at this stat line here. 35 points, 14 rebounds, 21 assists, which is just stupid. In 38 games, he has already set the franchise record for triple-dubs in one season, as I mentioned with 16. It was also the first 35-plus point and 20-plus assist triple-double in NBA history. And Westbrook can go for another triple-dub tonight when the Wizards host the Hornets. On the ice last night, Anthony Angelo and Jared McCann scored first-period goals, and the Penguins beat the Islanders 2-1. Casey DeSmith made 19 saves for the Pens, who have won four straight games. Tonight, the Capitals try to stay red hot when they take on the Rangers at MSG. And in spring training action, the Pirates lost to the Twins 5-3. Eric Gonzalez homered and drove in two for the Bucs. The Orioles lost to the Rays 8-3. Austin Hayes and Rio Ruiz homered for Baltimore. And the Astros and Nationals played to the ever-popular spring training tie. Two to two. And that is your Rock Around the Region brought to you by the Caporelli Group. So where else are we going to start today's show? But with some college hoops, right? Been talking about it pretty much every day for the past, uh, what, three weeks? Half of the Final Four is set after the first two games of the Elite Eight were played last night in Indianapolis. Basically, the right side of the bracket was completed as we crowned South and Midwest champions. First game of the night was in the Midwest where second-seeded Houston took on one of the Cinderella's of this year's tournament out of the Pac-12, the 12-seed Oregon State. And unfortunately for uh, Cinderella, the clock struck midnight. It's scooped up in the corner. There will be no foul. And the Cougars claw time since 1984 67-61 Houston is back on the biggest stage the final four sees a Cougar return the call on the Westwood One NCAA radio network Houston in the final four for the first time since the days of five slamma jamma Cougars hold off a rally from Oregon State and they win by six Houston led by as many as 17. That is a 17-point lead at the half. Oregon State comes all the way back to tie it at 55. But Quentin Grimes broke the tie with a three ball. And the Cougars made enough foul shots down the stretch to survive and advance. Now, I told you yesterday, if you were listening, this was going to be a defensive struggle. Oregon State 
They were only giving up 61 points a game this tournament. Houston was even better than that. They were only giving up 54 a game. As a matter of fact, I told you to run. Don't walk. Run to the window and take the under in that game, no matter what it was. The under ended up being 129 and a half. And it hit by one and a half points. Now, don't get me wrong. You had to sweat it out a bit. (laughs) It looked early. After halftime, it looked like, all right, there's no way it's going over 129 and a half. But then Oregon State kept fouling at the end, kept sending Houston to the free throw line. Then Oregon State hits a three. I'm like, no, you're 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 watching his score creep up more and more and more. But sometimes you'll have that. All that matters was the under hit by a point and a half. It's still a winner, winner, chicken dinner. You're welcome. And bottom line is Houston needed that defensive effort because (laughs) they shot 29% after halftime. And just 32% for the entire game. Not, you know, an offensive masterpiece from Houston. They held Oregon State to 35% shooting in the first half and really killed them on the glass. 41-29. And they pulled down 19 offensive rebounds, which, you know, you'll have that when you're only shooting 32% from the floor. You're going to have a lot of misses. You'll have the opportunities for offensive boards when you can't put the ball in the hole. And that was really a key difference in that game was Houston's ability to get on the offensive glass and pull down the offensive boards, get those second-chance points. Quentin Grimes, already mentioned his name, big-time three after it was tied 55-55. He had 18 points for the Cougs. He is a Houston native, and he joined Freddie and Fitzsimmons last night after the big win. We knew they was coming back. They were making a run, but we had to get stops. And just be the toughest team. I feel like what we did today. You're going to the Final Four, dude. I mean, the Houston Cougars are going to the Final Four. And and you're from there. You're, you're taking your hometown school to the Final Four. On a personal note, what does that mean to you? Yeah, it's surreal. Just just knowing that in Houston, they were, hey, I seen them building the program up. And then when I made the decision to come home, I just knew it was going to be a great fit. And just to see it all come full circle, it's just, it's just amazing. It's just something I, I dreamed of as a kid. Not to live it out as a reality, it's just crazy. It's been crazy what this team's been able to do as a number two seed from the American Athletic Conference under your coach Kelvin Sampson. What does it mean that do you believe that you've gotten your respect by getting to the Final Four? Mm, I definitely feel like I did just knowing just everything I went through, just knowing everything the team has went through together, uh, and just persevering through everything. People are counting us out the whole year, and we just stayed with it. We did our thing, went out there. And now we're going to the Final Four, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and your coach, I mean, you know, he's he's out of college basketball for for so many years after Indiana. He goes to the NBA, and then Houston gives him a chance. And here you are, you know, he's leading you guys to the Final Four. What does it mean for you to ha- to have Kelvin Sampson, your coach, back on that stage? <clears throat> Man, it's just something that we wanted to do, not only for us, but for him, too. We knew getting back was going to be big for him, and, uh, getting back to the second Final Four. And now we've got to, we got some unfinished vision that he got to take care of, and hopefully we can come out there and win the whole thing. Yeah, you know, it's a nice uh, kind of redemption story for Kelvin Sampson. Show of hands, before this tournament, how many of you actually knew that he was coaching Houston? Like, you kind of lost track of him. He had some issues at Indiana. We all know about him. Went to the NBA, comes back. 
and now he's going to the Final Four. And it's been a, a really weird path for Houston to get to this point. They're the, they're the only team in tournament history to play four double-digit seeds to reach the Final Four. The highest-rated team they played was Rutgers, and they were the 10 seed. They played a 10. They played the 11 seed Syracuse. They beat the 15 seed Cleveland State in the first round. And then last night, the 12 seed. They didn't play. They haven't played a single, single digit seed the entire tournament. Now, look, they're not going to apologize for it, right? You, you, you play the team that's in front of you, you win, and you move on. That's the tournament. Upsets happen. You can't determine, you can't, you know, choose who you play. You just play who advances. So, yeah, they played four double-digit seeds. They beat them all, and now they're in the Final Four. And then the question was, after that game, what would the next team be that would be in front of Houston? And this one, uh, it was guaranteed to be a, a, a single seed out of the South region. Mitchell with it right wing, shot clock at five, dribbles into the paint, finds Teague, left corner, three is up, and good again. Maceo Teague with a couple of triples. 72-61 Baylor. Butler's going to dribble back out front, nearly got it stripped, now turns, drives right, kick it out, Flagler, right wing, open, look at a three. Yes, sir! Adam Flagler hits his second three of the game. 55 seconds to go, 77-66 Baylor. The call again on the Westwood 1 NCAA Network. The Baylor Bears, the number one seed in the South, going to the Final Four for the first time since 1950 after knocking off the three-seed Arkansas 81-72. Just a third trip to the Final Four in program history and a bit of, I don't know if you want to call it a redemption story, but a nice little comeback story. I don't know what you want to call it. Because, look, remember last season, they had a really good season. I mean, they were in position to be a number one seed in last year's tournament, maybe even the top overall seed before the whole thing was canceled. Here's a Bears head coach, Scott Drew. Just a a pure joy, excitement. Um, Obviously uh, 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 tired because it's late and uh, uh, it was an emotional game. But again, uh, seeing our guys having a chance to cut down a net and celebrate uh, doesn't get much better than that. Very happy for everyone to to have this opportunity to celebrate. Been to two Elite Eights before and seen uh, Duke celebrate and then win a national championship. Kentucky celebrate, win a national championship. And it's nice that uh, uh, these guys were able to celebrate, especially after last year. Year, uh, when we were on the verge of having the first number one seed in school's history and not having a chance uh, to compete in the NCAA tournament. And as uh, Obim, who was on our team last year and is a GA now, said, uh, Freddie and uh, Devontae, uh, a piece of that net's coming to you. And when you look at the game itself, it was a typical, uh, typical game. <laughs> Let me try that in English this time. A typical game for both teams. Baylor came flying out of the gates had an 18-point lead in the first half. And Arkansas, which trailed by double digits in every game this tournament, came all the way back. They pulled to within four in the second half before Baylor kind of slammed the door shut in the final minutes. Davion Mitchell was doing most of the slamming. 
He only played nine minutes in the first half. He had three fouls. But he scored 10 of his 12 points in the second half, had six assists and a steal. Mitchell, more than anyone else, uh, stood out to ESPN analyst uh, Jay Billis. My single biggest takeaway is Davion Mitchell of Baylor is the most indispensable player in this tournament. If you saw what he did in the second half uh, to Villanova in the Sweet 16, where defensively just dominated the game, got steals, disrupted, and his speed, he's the motor of that team. And in the game we just saw against Arkansas, when he was in the game, he got in foul trouble in the first half. When he was in the game, Baylor was absolutely dominant over the Razorbacks. Arkansas made its run when Mitchell was out and he was compromised with foul trouble. But when he's in the game, uh, he can get to the rim, turn down a ball screen, and finish a play. And then defensively, his on-ball defense is the best in the country. There was, There's nobody that can match him. And I think he's the one player. You take him off Baylor's team, uh, and they're a totally different team. He's the most indispensable player in this tournament. Now, look, both teams shot 48% from the floor. Baylor, which we talked about before, is the nation's best three-point shooting team. They made 8 of 15. That's 53.3%. Big difference in the game, aside from Mitchell being in and out, in and out, it was turnovers. Arkansas turned it over 15 times to Baylor's 9. Baylor outscored Arkansas 21-6 to off those turnovers. That's the difference. That's the key. I mean, it's only a six turnover difference, 15 to nine. But Baylor made the best of those turnovers, the opportunities. And as we talked about yesterday, Arkansas had been living on the edge the whole tournament. They trailed, you know, Colgate by 14 in the first round, Texas Tech by 10, Oral Roberts by 12. And they had to rally to win all those games. I said it yesterday. If they fell behind like that to Baylor, they weren't going to win the game. And look, they rallied. They made it close. You made it a four-point game. So I guess you got to give them credit for that. But you can't continue to fall behind early to teams and expect to come back and win every single time, especially in the tournament when generally the further you advance – the tougher teams are going to play, unless you're Houston, I guess, when all the teams are double-digit seeds. So Arkansas, I guess, they played with fire just one too many times. So at the end of the night, we have Baylor and Houston, an all-Texas matchup in one half of the Final Four. And, you know, when you look at it, after all the upsets, right, after all the craziness, that's why we love the tournament. We love March Madness, where anybody can beat anybody. You had the great stories of Oral Roberts and, and Oregon State, right? These double-digit seeds making the runs and all this and that, whatever. At the end of the day, we have a one seed and a two seed advancing to the Final Four. When all the dust settles... The cream usually rises to the top, and we have a one and a two in one half of the Final Four. So, who will have the edge? 
in Saturday's national semifinal. Let's go back to uh, Mr. Billis. It's going to be rebounding because Baylor uh, can give up some second shots, but but and that's what Houston feels itself on. Houston shot 32% against Oregon State and won the game because they got 19 offensive rebounds. And, and that doesn't that they, they had a, a long stretch of the second half where Oregon State was playing that 1-3-1 and they were completely static and didn't move, you know, really couldn't score against it. Uh, so I, I think Baylor's rebounding is going to be a, of the utmost importance for the Bears if they want to win and go to the championship game. And do not forget your home for the Final Four. It's this very station right here. All the coverage from Westwood One. We had both games last night. We'll have both games tonight. And we'll have the Final Four and the national title game all right here on this very station. Speaking of tonight, two more games before the Final Four is complete. And we'll talk about those games next. Also, taking your calls, 301-759-2628. Hit me up on Twitter at ESPN Morning Rush. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, Cumberland's ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. Rush line is open, 301-759-2628. You want to talk some college hoops? Talked about last night's games. Baylor and Houston advancing to the Final Four. Both of those programs waiting a very long time to get back. Baylor hasn't been there since 1950. Houston hasn't been there since 1984. Which, I guess, is kind of be expected when you have a tournament missing a lot of its, you know, usual teams. No Duke. North Carolina wasn't its usual North Carolina self. Neither was Michigan State. They didn't even make it out of the playing game. Kentucky didn't make the tournament. Kansas was an overrated three seed. So when you have those, and I hate using this term because it's overused, but the Blue Bloods, when you have them out of the tournament, you're going to have stuff like this. You're going to have programs making runs that you generally don't see, especially in this crazy COVID year. So one, first time since 1950, the other since 1984. Tonight you got two more games. And it's funny because, as I mentioned in the last segment, you know, we, we really love the first couple rounds of the tournament because you have all the upsets, you have, you know, double-digit seeds advance and this and that, whatever. And at the end of the day, in the final four, on that half of the bracket, you have a number one versus a number two. There is a potential for two more number ones to advance tonight. And wouldn't that be something? To have three number ones and a two in the final four. First game tonight, the number one seed in the West region, Gonzaga, still unbeaten, 29-0, and 0, uh, taking on the six seed USC, 25-7. and 7. And again, a reminder, programming note, catch all the action, both games tonight, right here on this station, Westwood, Westwood won coverage. <laughs> beginning at 7 o'clock. Gonzaga really hasn't been 
all you know tested all that much this tournament. I guess Oklahoma gave him a little bit, little bit of a push. Creighton had no chance. Creighton had no chance against the Zags the last game. And as much as we talk about Gonzaga doing damage on the offensive end with Drew Timmy, Timmy, you know, Corey Kispert, Jalen Suggs, all those guys, defensively, they're getting the job done as well. They have <laughs> they have held opponents below their scoring average in 20 games, including the past six. So whatever USC's scoring average is, you could probably count on the fact that it's being lower than usual. And we don't talk about Gonzaga's defense enough. I mean, they put up 83 against Creighton, but they held Creighton to 65. That was Creighton's lowest output of the entire season. Creighton shot 41%. They made just 5 of 23 three-pointers. It was the seventh time this season the Zags held an opponent at least 10 points below their season average. They can D up when they need to. Then again, so can USC. They employ a lot of zone defense, which I'm sure they'll do tonight because they got the big man in the middle, Evan Mobley. And USC, they can put the ball in the hole. They're shooting almost 55% this tournament. So they're going to test that Gonzaga defense, no doubt. And probably the two best players on the floor tonight are going to be two freshmen. And two freshmen that we're not going to see next year. So (laughs) listen to the game on this station or watch it on TV because you're not going to see them. Whoever loses tonight's game, you're not going to see them in a college uniform ever again. Because you got the seven-footer Evan Mobley for USC and you got Jalen Suggs for Gonzaga. They're probably top three picks in next year's NBA draft. They're definite lottery picks. So whoever goes down tonight, <laughs> you can kiss them goodbye. I mentioned USC zone. They've been playing. They played man defense, according to head coach Andy Enfield, about 90% of the season. But they've been playing a lot more zone, given their size, in the tournament. And it's worked out. They're only allowing 32% shooting uh, in the tournament so far. Gonzaga, they're in the Elite Eight for the fourth time in six seasons. They're trying to get back to the Final Four for the first time since 2017. We talked about Baylor and Houston not being there forever. Zags, they're there most recently four years ago. USC, they're in a region final for the first time since 2001. They haven't been to the Final Four since 1954. And, of course, the big storyline here is Gonzaga and that undefeated record. Can they be the first team? We've said it over and over and over again since 1976. The Indiana squad to finish a season perfect. And there's really two ways to look at that. If they finish the season undefeated, you know there are going to be people who will detract from that because of the crazy year we've had. 
You know there's going to be people, if Gonzaga runs the table and finishes unbeaten, there will be people that will try to tear it down and say, well, you know, other teams had COVID, other teams had this, other teams had to deal with that. If it was a regular year, they never would have done it, right? You're going to have that. Then you're going to have people on the other side saying, in the most difficult of years, they were still good enough to go undefeated, right? So you're going to have both sides of that. If, if, and that's a big if still, they can run the table. And we discussed this briefly yesterday, and I'll discuss it again now since we're talking about the game. USC size with the big man, Evan Mobley, might give Gonzaga a little bit of problems. And we referenced the West Virginia game earlier in the season when the Mountaineers still had Oscar Shibway and Derek Culver. And they played Gonzaga early in the season, especially in the first half. It looked like Gonzaga really didn't want anything to do with taking that ball inside with West Virginia's two big men in the middle. Now, Gonzaga eventually won the game. They scored up in the 80s. But that might be a key to USC tonight. They've got to protect the rim. Evan Mobley, they got to protect the rim. They got to keep Gonzaga out of the paint, forcing the shoot three. Can they win shooting threes? Yes. But if USC wants any chance, they're going to play a lot of zone. They're going to pack it in. Mobley's going to protect the paint. And they're going to force the Zags to shoot from downtown and see and take their chances there. Again, they're holding teams at 32% shooting. Zags are favored by eight and a half in this game. That's a lot as far as I'm concerned. It's it's hard to, you know, argue it the way they're just rolling teams. But there's something about this USC team that I like. I don't like them to win, don't get me wrong. I think Gonzaga wins and moves on to their, again, their second final four in the last four years. But I think USC keeps it respectable. I really do. That eight and a half is a lot. I like USC in the eight and a half, but I think the Zags win and move on to the final four. Then the second game tonight, which will tip around and eh, 10 o'clock-ish, in the East region, <clears throat> number one Michigan, and the 11 seed, UCLA. Another one of those Pac-12 Cinderella's along with Oregon State, because Oregon State lost last night. And Michigan, we talked about the injury to Isaiah Livers. He's out for the rest of the tournament. They're still playing well. They got their own big man in the middle, Hunter Dickinson. UCLA, I, I don't know how they're even here. I really don't. I mean, they, they lost four straight games in the regular season. They, they went into the tournament on a four-game losing streak. They trailed Michigan State in that play-in game, managed to come back and win that, and they haven't lost since. Now, again, the competition had been that great. They uh, We talked about it before. They beat BYU, which is overrated. They beat Abilene Christian. They blew out Abilene Christian after they upset Texas. And then they beat Alabama in overtime. Which, that was impressive. That's an impressive win. Michigan is the only team, or the only number one seed, that has had to go through chalk, if that makes any kind of sense. Because they have faced 
the toughest seed possible in each round. Does that make you understand what I'm saying right there? They faced the 16 seed in the first round. Then they faced the 8 seed, LSU. Then they faced the 4 seed, Florida State. They have faced the toughest seed that they could possibly face each round. Now, obviously, tonight's <laughs> a little different. What if Alabama was the second seed? That would have been the next toughest one. But UCLA spoiled that party. And actually, both teams come into tonight without a, a key player. Michigan without Livers and UCLA, they lost their best player, Chris Smith, way back to a torn ACL like eight games into the season. Looking at the uh, tournament history here, they played four times before in the tournament. UCLA has, they won three of the four. And it's been a while, okay? It's been a while. First came back in 1965. They played 1975 and 1998. Michigan's only win against UCLA in the tournament was in 1993. I have a feeling here, and it's, and Michigan is only favored by six and a half. I don't get that. I don't understand that. I have a feeling that Michigan is going to beat the brakes off of UCLA tonight. Just a gut feeling. And it's nothing against UCLA. It's been a great run. It really has. To come from an 11 seed out of nowhere, Cinderella Story, Shelley Bruins, come out of nowhere, Pasadena, California, to play in the East Region Final against Michigan. I think their story's done. Michigan, even without Isaiah Livers, playing very, very well. I don't know how UCLA matches up against Hunter Dickinson. I really don't. I like Michigan to win and cover the six and a half tonight. So at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, again, (laughs) you give all the upsets, all the craziness. If I am correct, that's that wasn't correct. That's too loud. If I'm correct, we'll have a final four with three number one seeds and a number two. The cream always rises to the top. All right, one more break, and then we'll come back to wrap up our number one. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, Cumberland's ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. So I wanted to touch on this briefly before we get to the top of the hour. Uh, Kim Mulkey is the head coach of the Baylor's, the Baylor women's team. And they were eliminated last night by UConn. And that's something we'll talk about next hour. Trust me, because that ending of that game was another just egregious non-call by the officials. But after the game, in her post-game press conference, Mulkey just really unprompted, nobody really asked the question, but she had this to say, about the Final Fours. I don't think my words will matter. After the games today and tomorrow, there's four teams left, I think, on the men's side and the women's side. They need to dump the COVID testing. Wouldn't it be a shame to keep COVID testing and then you got kids that end up having test positive or something and they don't get to play in a Final Four? So you need to just forget the, sh- the, the, the COVID test and let the four teams that are playing in each Final Four go battle it out. 
when I first heard her say that, I was like, well, that's, that's a pretty bold statement. But then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, you know what? She's not too far off. To come this far, and she mentioned both the men's and women's tournaments, to get this far and to really come down to the final eight teams, four in each, you know, tournament, would it really, would it really be that bad if they just said, you know what, we're going to stop testing for the next two games? I mean, they've been in Indianapolis. Well, the men have been in Indianapolis. The women have been in San Antonio for what, a couple weeks now? They haven't really gone anywhere. They haven't been allowed to leave the city. They've been following strict, you know, protocols and guidelines like everybody else. She has a point. Now, I know some people will hear that and go, oh, what? You can't can't get rid of testing. But what's it matter at this point? You get to the final four. You've gone through the first, what is it, three rounds, four rounds? To get that far, it would really, really stink to get that far and then not be able to play or coach. And I guess one of the bigger issues is if they continue to test, which they um, they will, they will. If somebody tests positive, does that team forfeit? Does somebody skate into the finals, the championship game? Kind of like when VCU had to forfeit in the first round against Oregon in the men's tournament? Would it really be that bad if they just stopped testing just for the weekend? Like test all the way up because the women's Final Four is on Friday. The men's is on Saturday. So the women's title game is on Sunday, men on Monday. Would it really be that terrible of a thing if you test all the way up until the day of the Final Four and then just stop testing this weekend? Just Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, depending on which tournament you're in, just put put the kits away. Put it away. If those teams are healthy enough, if they all test negative throughout this week, right, and they're all healthy enough to play in their final four games, then why bother? Why why take that chance? And we're still we're talking about we're talking about young student athletes at the peak of health. We all we've talked about the numbers before. We've talked about how COVID affects school-aged kids and, and you know people who are in great health. So it's not like, of course, there's risk in everything we do. So it's not like you know if one of these players, you know, gets COVID, that they can't have a a terrible effect. I'm not saying that it won't, but chances are, it won't. I wouldn't be opposed to that. If the NCAA came out and said, you know what? We're going to test all the way up to the Final Four, and then we're just going to stop. We're going to, we're going to give these student-athletes the opportunity to play the Final Four and the title game, and we're not going to ruin that chance. I would, have, I would have zero problem with that. Other people, I know people would. They would be beside themselves, but I wouldn't have an issue with it. So I kind of like, I like Kim's idea.
Just do away with the testing altogether for the Final Four and the championship game. And again, we'll hear from Coach Mulkey later uh, in the next hour because she wasn't happy about a non-call at the end of that Baylor-UConn game. Gino Ariema decided he just wanted to ignore it because they won the game. And we'll hear from Fran Fraschilla, who he likes officials, he likes referees, but they just cannot swallow the whistle in certain situations. We'll get all to that. We'll get to all that and more in, ne- in the next hour. And I'll work on my English in the meantime. Stick around. Cumberland's ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. Tony C. in the big chair, live from the palatial ESPN studio, high atop Industrial Boulevard. On the south side of the Queen City, baby. A reminder, several ways to get involved on the show. Hit me up on Twitter at ESPN Morning Rush or at Rush Tony C. Leave me a message on Facebook at Cumberland's ESPN Radio. All those pages are there. The DMs are open, as the kids say. You can just get a question, a comment, whatever. Hit me up that way. Or you can call me on the rush line, 301-759-2628. Your chance to dial and dance. Come on, 301-759-2628. Want to talk some college hoops? Talked last hour about uh, last night's games. Houston and Baylor moving on to complete one half of the men's Final Four. Got two more games tonight, which you can catch right here on this very station. Coverage beginning at 7 o'clock. And at the end of last segment, we talked about Baylor women's head coach uh, Kim Mulkey throwing out the idea that once the men's and women's tournament they get to the Final Four, they should stop COVID testing for the weekend. Like, test all the way up. The women's Final Four is on Friday. Men's is on Saturday. When they get to that point, quit testing. Let them play throughout the weekend because you'd hate to get that far and have a kid miss out on playing in the Final Four or a national title game because of a test. I like the idea. I wouldn't be opposed to it. They won't do it, but I wouldn't be opposed to it. Your thoughts on that and anything else, give me a call, 301-759-2628. If you missed any of that first hour or uh, anything uh, prior to that, any show, don't forget about our podcast page on the free Podbean app where we upload every show every day. Take out all the commercials, cut it up, slice it up, clean it up, and it's all there just for you. All right. Uh, one final time today, let's rock around the region. I want to rock right now. And we start with boys high school basketball, where Drew Keckley calmly sank a pair of free throws with two seconds left to give Hampshire a 60-58 win over Moorfield. Elsewhere, it was Harmon over Union, 52-43. On the girls' side, more drama involving Hampshire. This one, uh, not the best result for the Trojans. Alexa Shoemaker hit a three-pointer at the buzzer to give Kaiser a 50-39 win over Hampshire and earn a split of the season series. Uh, Gracie Fields had 14 points for Hampshire. 
Elsewhere, Pocahontas County beat East Hardy 38-27. Musselman beat Washington 45-32. Preston was 10 better than RCB 51-41. And Spring Mills rolled over Hedgesville 86-36. In boys high school soccer, Jacob Ritchie had a pair of goals as Mountain Ridge blanked Allegheny 2-0. Ethan Ashenfelter stopped all three shots he faced uh, for the shutout. The Mountain Ridge girls completed the sweep. Uh, They beat the campers 1-0. Sidney Snyder scored the only goal of the game for the Miners. Mountain Ridge led in shots 10-1. In high school football, this Thursday afternoon's game between Fort Hill and Mountain Ridge at the Ridge has been canceled due to COVID issues. The game will not be made up. In the NBA last night, Russell Westbrook made some history for the Wizards. Fourth quarter, what a game we have at Capital One Arena. Nobody moves. Westbrook, 10 of the clock, shoots a three. It's there. Oh, my. Oh, it's there. The call on Federal News Radio. I love that guy. It's there. Oh, it's there. 132-124 the final as the Wizards get the win. They beat the Pacers. And Westbrook gets his 16th triple-double of the season. Check out this stat line. 35 points, 14 rebounds, 21 assists. In just 38 games, he has already set the Washington franchise record for triple-dubs in one season. And it was also the first 35-point 20-assist triple-double in NBA history. Now, Westbrook can go for another triple-double tonight when the Wizards host the Hornets. Uh, Bradley Beal did not play last night. On the ice, Anthony Angelo and Jared McCann scored first-period goals, and the Penguins beat the Islanders 2-1. Casey DeSmith made 19 saves for the Pens, who have won four straight. Tonight, the Capitals, they have won 10 of 11 They try to stay red hot when they take on the Rangers at MSG. And in spring training action, the Pirates lost to the Twins 5-3. Eric Gonzalez homered and drove in two for the Bucs. The Orioles lost to the Rays 8-3. Austin Hayes and Rio Ruiz homered for Baltimore. And the Astros and Nationals played to the ever-popular spring training tie 2-2. And that is... Your Rock Around the Region brought to you by the Caporelli Group. Today, the Pirates are at the Twins, and that's it. Nationals and Orioles, they wrapped up spring training yesterday. They're off today. They don't play again until opening day. The Bucks have one more game left at Minnesota, 12.05, and then... They're off tomorrow, and then we have opening day on Thursday. How about that? And a reminder, this very station, your home for the Washington Nationals, will have that home opener or season opener. Is it at home? I'm not even quite sure. Thursday evening, uh, just for you. So, I generally start my day uh, with a curse word, okay? I've, I've, (laughs) I've said this several times. When that alarm goes off at 3.20 in the a.m., usually the first word out of my mouth is a curse word. And it's usually the worst one of all. 
Today, I started off my day with two F words. One being the one we're talking about, and the second one being 50. I woke up today, and the first words out of my mouth as I turned off my alarm was, I am bleeping 50. I turned 50 today, 50 years old, half a century. And it just, I said this yesterday, or maybe it was Friday, I can't remember. See, I'm already having a senior moment. When you get to a, I guess, a milestone like this, you know, not much is different today. I don't feel any different. I don't look any different, although I wish I did. I wish I was 100 pounds lighter. So it's not much difference. But when you reach a milestone like this, it causes you to reflect. It causes you to look back more than you look forward. Because 50 years is a long time, right? And so it just kind of got me thinking about how things have changed. And I know I'm, you know, I'm going to miss a lot of stuff. I'm going to leave a lot of stuff out. But it's just when you look back at like whenever I was, and if you're my age range, you can relate to some of this stuff. If you're much younger than me, you'll have no idea what I'm talking about. But when you look back, 50 years is a lot of living, man. It's a lot of living. Had a lot of great things happen in my 50 years. Had a lot of terrible things happen too. That's life, right? Got married. Been married for almost 25. Half I've been married for almost half of that 50. God bless her soul. <laughs> Dealing with me for that long. For 18 out of 50, I've raised a wonderful son, right? Also had some loss along the way. I lost my dad. It's going to be 14 years. Next month, lost some grandparents, lost some friends along the way. 50 years, a lot, lot of stuff happens in 50 years, man. Some of it still bubbles to the surface. Some of it still hits as hard as it did back when it happened. And just looking back, you know, born on the, I was on this day in 1971. 1971. I've seen 10 different U.S. presidents. I've seen more than a dozen conflicts and wars, right? I've seen the war on drugs. I've seen the war on terror. I've seen a freaking pandemic in 50 years. If you're my age range, you'll get this one. I've seen vinyl get replaced by the cassette, which got replaced by the CD, which got replaced by the MP3. I grew up in a time where an album collection would take up an entire wall. Now, it fits in your pocket. I grew up in a time when if you wanted to know who was calling you, you actually had to pick up the phone, which, by the way, was attached to the wall by a cord that was about 30 feet long. <laughs> See, kids don't get that. Kids won't get that. They won't understand that. Hey, what do you mean the phone was on the wall? What do you mean the phone was attached to the wall with a cord? What's a, what's a cord? And I, 
I remember it was a big deal when we actually graduated from the rotary phone to the push-button phone, right? You remember the big old bulky rotary phones that sat at every house back in the 70s had a, a phone table. Every house had a phone table, and it was usually when you walked in the front door. There was a table with a big, and there, there was you got three colors, black, white, and red. That was it. Big old rotary phone sitting there, and underneath it, you know what sat underneath that? In the next shelf, a phone book that was about three feet thick. So it was big time when we graduated to the phone that got mounted on the wall with push buttons. <laughs> there was no caller ID. That phone rang. You know what you did? You answered it. Or else you'd have no idea who was calling. I grew up in a time when the TV was considered a piece of furniture. (laughs) You set things on top of the TV. Now it's the other way around. Hell, now we even hang TVs on the wall. I grew up in a time... When, thank God, there were no cell phones, no cell cameras, and no social media. And again, if you're around my age range, you're happy about that too. Because Lord knows we did some stupid stuff that we wouldn't want anybody to know about. I grew up in a time when if you had a beef with somebody... You settled it. You didn't run and hide behind a keyboard and send out nasty messages. If you had a beef with someone, you went toe-to-toe. You squared off, you threw down, and at the end of it all, you brushed yourself off, you shook hands, and guess what? You were hanging out the next day. I grew up in a time as I turn 50 today, when you played outside for hours and hours and hours. If it was during the school year, you went home, you finished your homework, and you ran outside to play. If it was during the summertime, shoot. You got up, you ate breakfast, you left the house, And before you know it, you were hurrying back home to beat the streetlights. That's what we did. And even then, you begged to stay out longer. And if you're lucky, mom would let you or dad would let you. But, but you had to stay. Where'd you have to stay? Under the streetlight. You couldn't leave the streetlight. We rode bikes. We played football on the street. We played street hockey. We played hide-and-seek. We played tag, freeze-tag. We got dirty. We got muddy. And got into a little bit of trouble. And we didn't have to set up play dates. You know what I mean? We just went outside and found each other. And then went wherever the day took us. And if there's nobody around, you found things to do yourself. We use things like imagination. (laughs) 
There were times when nobody was around. There were times when every single one of my friends was on punishment, on restriction. They couldn't come outside because they did something stupid and got caught. But you went outside and you found something to do. You played with your army men or you played with your matchbox cars. Heck, I remember I grew up by the railroad tracks in southwest PA. And I remember on more than one occasion passing the time, a couple blocks over, right behind my grandmother's house, there was an old train yard. Big, giant brick building. The rail yard was no longer used. It was no longer in use. You had some broken down cars. It was just an old train yard. And I remember passing the time on more than one occasion with an old wooden baseball bat and some rocks. Because being an old train yard, there were rocks everywhere. And I would just spend hours tossing up a rock, hitting it with the bat, and trying to hit it over the building, the train building. Or, if I was lucky, hit a window. That's what you did. They didn't get in trouble for it. Nobody made it a fuss. Nobody made, Lord knows I could have been doing a lot of other things. That would have been a lot worse. But you found time. You found ways to occupy yourself. You had to back in those days. We didn't have what the kids have today. I grew up in a time I owned, get this now, and again, you youngsters may not have any idea. I owned an Atari 2600. I I, I owned one. That my first, <laughs> That was a big deal. Our first TV was black and white. We didn't have a computer in the house until I was in middle school. And you know what it was? It was a Commodore 64. Of course it was. Of course it was. Sports-wise, I've seen a miracle in the Meadowlands, a miracle on ice, and a miracle in the Music City. I have seen, or at least been alive for, My hometown NFL team go to eight Super Bowls and win six of them. My hockey team go to five Stanley Cup Finals and win them all. I've been alive, and remember one of them, barely, for two World Series championships and one football national title. However, I've also been around long enough to see the Steelers suffer through the 80s The Pirates go through 20 straight losing seasons. The Penguins file for bankruptcy and almost leave Pittsburgh. And the Pitt football team be pretty much irrelevant for the better part of the last 40 years. I've seen the Pitt basketball program, the golden era with Ben Howland and Jamie Dixon, but never reach a Final Four. In my 50 years, I've seen the NFL go from a smash-mouth, ground-and-pound, knock-your-face-off game to a game that kind of resembles more flag football than anything else. Let's see how many receivers we can fit onto the field and throw it 50 times a game. You can't touch the quarterback. Can't hit a guy high. You can't hit him low. Can't barely hit him at all. I've seen the golden age of the NBA. And this one ain't it. The day when there was no such thing as time management. 
There were 82 games on the schedule. You played 82 games. And there will never be, in whatever lifetime I have left, a better era in the NBA than back when it was Michael, Magic, Bird, and Dr. J. Just won't. Can't touch it. I've seen Major League Baseball go from the quest to hit 400 to the quest to hit it 400 feet. I've seen baseball go from Iron Man pitchers to pitchers who consider six innings a quality start. I've seen the NHL go from a wide-open scorer's league to the clutch-and-grab garage league days that almost killed the sport, forced Mario Lemieux to retire, to what it is today, which is actually a good combination of both. I've seen the love of the game get replaced by the love of money. And because of that, I've seen parents ruin the love of the game for their children because they think that their kid is the next big superstar and they're going to sign that multi-million dollar NFL or NBA contract. And you know what? They usually don't. I grew up in a time when you strived to be a three-sport athlete in high school. You wanted that letterman's jacket with the three logos on it, whether it be a football, a baseball, a basketball, track and field, a combination of whatever. Nowadays, you got 13-year-old kids specializing in a sport. And for what? I guess you can go back to my last point for that answer. I remember a time when people weren't offended by everything. I grew up in a time when if you stepped out of line, mom or dad put you back in it. And they weren't polite about it. Maybe a smack on the rear end. Maybe the old wooden spoon. God help you if that spoon had a hole in it. And it wasn't considered abuse. It wasn't considered, it was called parenting. It was called discipline. I remember a time whenever we were kids, we were held accountable for what we did. We did stupid things. We did dumb things. And we were held accountable for it. We were punished for it. I grew up in a time when you knew your neighbors. I grew up in a time when you didn't have to lock your front door. I'm not saying that my era was perfect. But life, I guess with every generation, life just seemed a little bit easier as I was growing up. I grew up in a time when people just stopped by. People just dropped by the house. There's a comedian, one of my favorites, Sebastian Meniscalco, who's, who's hilarious. And he actually does a piece on this, a little uh, one of his bits about back in the day. If you get a chance, YouTube it. How people just used to drop by. Just, hey, I was in the neighborhood. I figured I'd stop by and say, hey. Figured I'd see how you and the kids were doing. And your mom always had like a, a snack cake and coffee on hand just in case somebody stopped by. It's for company, right? We had company back when I grew up. Company would just drop by out of nowhere. Didn't have to call. Didn't have to text in advance. Didn't have to set anything up. You just, I was in the neighborhood. I figured I'd drop by, see how you were doing. And you spent hours on the front porch or the back porch drinking coffee, maybe a little something else. 
Nowadays, we don't stop by anywhere. We don't just drop by. And if you did, chances are people wouldn't open the door anyway. <laughs> they would duck and hide behind the couch. I've seen a lot of things in 50 years. Ups and downs, good and bad. Things to celebrate and things to forget. But the best news of it all is that I'm still here. That's something that we all need to remember. This past year has been absolutely goofy. It's been crazy. It's been messed up. This past year has been difficult on everybody. Different levels, different degrees, right? But we're still here. Even our worst days, even the worst of the worst, we survived it. We're still here. Been here for 50. I don't know if I'm going to reach 50 more. I have no idea. I have no idea if I'm going to reach tomorrow. A lot has changed in 50 years. Some for the good, some for the bad. It's been a hell of a ride so far, right? You got to reflect. You got to look back. Everybody always thinks that their era was the best era, right? Everybody thinks that back in my day is always a better day. And I look back at my day, and I think that it was better than today. And then the next generation after this is going to think the same thing. It's just the way it goes. Because life is ever-changing. Life is ever-expanding. Life is, is always moving, always shaking. To quote myself from this morning, I am bleeping 50. Who knows <laughs> what's in store for me next. All right, time for a break. News and weather coming up. Then we'll get back to some sports, some college hoops. Stick around. 102.1 FM, AM 1230, Cumberland, ESPN Radio. This is the Morning Rush. Glad to have you on board. Good morning to you. Rush line is open. You want to get involved, 301-759-2628. Now, last hour, uh, we played a clip from Baylor women's head coach uh, Kim Mulkey, who, during her post-game press conference uh, last night, kind of threw it out there that maybe they should stop COVID testing for the Final Four for both the men's and the women's tournaments. Like test all the way up to the Final Four. If everybody tests you know, negative, then just let them play out the weekend because you don't want to call, you know, you don't want a, a student athlete or a coach to get that far and have that moment taken away, which I said I'm all for. The NCAA won't do it because there's liability and all that other kind of stuff. But I thought it was a great idea. Uh, Mulkey was also uh, in the news last night for another reason. Because of how their game ended last night against UConn. UConn headed to its 13th straight women's Final Four. But not without a controversial ending. Now they beat Baylor at the Alamo Dome uh, 69-67. It was a 68-67 game with about five seconds left. And a guard for Baylor, and forgive me if I can't pronounce her first name, the Johnny Carrington, 
She goes to the rack. She goes to score to put the you know, to put the Bears up by one, and she is absolutely hacked by two UConn players as she went up for the shot. And as a matter of fact, earlier this morning, I retweeted it on our Twitter page at ESPN Morning Rush. It's a still shot of Carrington going up for the shot. And then these two UConn players just simply just was all over. And there was no foul called. UConn got the ball. I think her name was Kristen Williams. She was fouled. She went to the line. She made a free throw with less than a second left. So the game was essentially over at that point. And UConn wins by two. So then the debate started about the non-call. LeBron James goes on Twitter and says, come on, man, that was a foul. Other people were, you know, pretty upset that in that situation, the referees, as we've seen before, swallowed the whistle and didn't call anything. And Coach Mulkey was asked about the non-call after the game last night. What did you see when Dijonay drove the ball from where you were standing? What did you see? I was surprised they didn't call a foul. Then write it like that. You don't need a quote from me. I've got steel shots and video from two angles. One kid hits her in the face and one kid hits her on the elbow. She's not wrong. One, one hit her in the face, one hit her in the elbow. It was as obvious a foul as you can get. And not just from one player. She got fouled by two players. And nothing was called. Now, they had let a lot go prior to that. They let him play a lot in that game last night. It was a physical game. And UConn head coach Gino Ariema was asked about the call or non-call after the game. I don't know. I haven't seen it. But I'd also like to look at all the fouls in the first half where they shot 11 free throws and we shot two. So I don't think I'm going to go back and check all those, and I'm not going back and check on the last one. So, you know, a call is a call, and you got to live with it. You know, the, the officials are going to make the call they think they, they need to make. Now, it's easy for him to say that because he won the game. <laughs> it's real easy to sit there and go, out. Oh, our officials, man, a call is a call. I'm not going to go back and look at it. Well, because you don't have to, because you won. And we had a, a similar situation, and we talked about this in the, in the UCLA-Alabama men's game. At the end of regulation there, when UCLA scored a bucket to go up, and there was a, a I don't want to call it a clear charge, but the way charges have been called this tournament, it was a charge. And it simply wasn't called in that UCLA game. And it should have been. I'm losing my voice here. you got to excuse me. And if that call would have been made, the charge call, Alabama would have got the ball and they still would have had a one-point lead. Instead, the charge wasn't called. I think there was 14 seconds left in the game. The charge wasn't called. UCLA scores. And they take the lead. Late. And then we got into the conversation about, you know, hey, if, you're, if it's a charge in the first minute of the game, because in the first three minutes of that UCLA Alabama game, UCLA drew two charges. So if it's a charge in the first three minutes, why isn't it a charge in the last minute? Here's a case last night where 
to Coach Ariema's point, well, they didn't call a lot of fouls in this game, so why should they call it now? But when you look at the replay and you see the still the still shots, she got hacked. And the referees did nothing. Fran Frischilla, who, you know, longtime coach, longtime analyst, he call he has called, I think, eight women's tournaments in the past. He was on with Freddie and Fitzsimmons last night uh, to talk about uh, the uh, call, non-call. I'm a fan of officiating. I think there's great officiating, uh, Freddie, on both sides, men's and women's. But you know, I, I, I've never agreed with the idea that you let the players decide the game. Um, I have a picture, a still picture of the of the player being fouled, Dejanay Carrington, and. You you have to we you have to call a foul in the first minute of the game, and the last minute of the game. You can't. There's no. It's nonsense when you say let the players decide it because the young lady from UConn decided the game when she fouled Carrington. It would have been heartbreaking for UConn to lose on two free throws late in the game, but it's more heartbreaking for Baylor to lose the way they did when it was. It seemed obvious. There was a foul called. There, there should have been a foul called on the play. How much of that, friend, was they let so much go throughout the whole basketball game that they felt yeah. compelled to not make a foul call in that situation? Listen, it's one thing, Freddie, to let both teams, you know, to 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 to, to officiate a game in a way that's physical. Okay, the rules right now uh, in college basketball on both the men's and women's side. They really preclude physical play for the most part. There are some games where the officials may let a little bit more go throughout the course of the game. Bump, bump fouls, uh, incidental contact away from the play. But on the final play of a crucial game, uh, you have to make that call. You just have to. It's, you know, otherwise, we're, we're back to the YMCA where you're playing to point game at 11, and you know how it is. Yep. Everybody's fouling each other because nobody wants to give up the final basket. You can't officiate a, an important game like that. Coach, why is it uh, in the tournament that, that you see this, and you've been told this more often than not when it comes to the two, not just the women's side, but also to a degree maybe even on the men's side where officials aren't, yeah. aren't willing to blow that whistle on an obvious foul at the last second of a game? I'm going to say this, uh, Fitz, um, and this is going to come out wrong. I don't care. I watch a lot of women's basketball. I did the tournament for eight years. I saw Kim Mulkey get away with this uh, a number of years ago. There will be some people in South Dakota that will know exactly what I'm talking about. Against South Dakota State, a team that was outplaying them, she intimidated the officials that night. I saw it for myself. I think there's still a little bit on the women's side. And not to say that officiating is – is going to be perfect on either side, men's or women's, because I'll call it out when I see it. By and large, these officials do a great job. That's how they advance in a tournament. But there, I've seen on occasion, I've seen it this year, that there are some, I believe that there's just a old-school mentality of not wanting to be involved in an upset. And you don't want to be responsible for the upset. And to me, that's not, that's not great officiating. Those three officials do not, I'm telling you, they're not going to sleep tonight. I feel terrible for the three of them uh, because they, they did a regional final. But the reality is they will not sleep tonight because they know that they were involved in a controversial finish that we'll probably talk about into next season. Certainly the Baylor fans will be talking about it all summer and fall. But those, those officials are human, and they're, they're not going to be able to put their head on the pillow tonight and fall asleep easily. It's unfortunate. So the bottom line is, the question is, 
Because I, I guarantee if they had called the foul, then there would have been people screaming and yelling, well, oh, my goodness, you can't call a foul in that situation. You got to let the players decide the game. But when it's as blatant and obvious as that foul was, you got to call it. You can't. A hand check in the first half is completely different than an absolute mugging in the final seconds of a regional final of a tournament. You're an official. It's your job to call the fouls. Call it when it happens. And I agree with uh, Fran 100%. If you're afraid of, of being the determining factor in a game by making a call, then you shouldn't be refereeing. You shouldn't be an official. And I look, I am – I try to support officials because I know it's not easy. I said before I officiated one year in the church league. I'll never do it again. It's brutal. It's difficult. And I challenge anybody – who constantly rails against officials, grab a whistle, go do it yourself, and see how easy it is, because it's not. But in that situation, you simply cannot let that go without calling that foul. And again, I I, I retweeted a picture on uh, our Twitter page, uh, at ESPN Morning Rush. Check it out. Decide for yourself. It it was an absolute mugging. Now, who knows? Maybe she misses both free throws. I don't know. But the fact she wasn't given the opportunity... To shoot those foul shots and give her team the league. That was that was an egregious miscall or non-call by the officials. All right, one final break. Back to wrap things up. Stick around, Cumberland's ESPN Radio. This is the morning rush. Before we get out of here, let's look at the player who delivered, brought to you by All Seasons Landscaping. And Supply Yard, and this one was a, an absolute no-brainer. Fourth quarter, what a game we have at Capital One Arena. Nobody moves. Westbrook, 10 of the clock, shoots a three. It's there. Oh, my. Oh, it's there. The call on the Federal News Radio, Russell Westbrook, a triple-double last night. The Wizards beat the Pacers. Westbrook, 35 points, 14 rebounds, 21 assists. It was his 16th triple-double of the season, which breaks the Washington franchise record. It was also the first 35-point, 20-assist triple-double in NBA history. So, Russell Westbrook, Mr. Triple-Double himself, the player who delivered last night, brought to you by All Seasons Landscaping and Supply Yard. Uh, The players who did not deliver, the Buffalo Sabres, We talked about them a couple weeks ago whenever they were playing the Penguins. And I told you that they're just not bad. They are historically bad. They have now lost 18 straight games. They they had a 3-0 lead last night against the Flyers. In the third period. And lost in overtime. They blew a 3-0 lead in the third period. And then (laughs) Ivan Provorov scored 42 seconds into OT to give Philly the win. Now, there's some debate on actually what we're supposed to call this. Because the way the NHL does it is, 
it's not a loss. It has to be in regulation uh, because they have the points in over. You know, they have a regulation loss and an overtime loss. So, really, according to the NHL, it's a 15-game losing streak because they've lost 15 games in regulation. They've lost three in overtime. So, according to the NHL, it's a 18-game winless streak, not an 18-game losing streak, which is pretty stupid, if you ask me. Because by the NHL's record-keeping, Buffalo is 0-15-3. Whatever you want to call it, according to ESPN's Barry Melrose, uh, it stinks. Don't tell me that's not a losing streak. I was on that Winnipeg team, and no matter what you did, it's a losing streak. You right. feel like a loser. You look like a loser. And and that's exactly what's happening. They're just there's they're just so tender right now. The Buffalo Sabers they just they don't want the puck in the power play. The other players don't want the the puck in open ice. The game the game can't end soon enough. This the game tonight was unbelievable, unbelievable. No matter who you're rooting for, your heart has to just bleed for the Sabers, the organization, and that great sports town that is Buffalo. <laughs> this <laughs> this is the longest winless streak. Since the Penguins went 0-17-1 in the 2003-04 season. Now, the good news for the Pens is they followed that up by drafting Evgeny Malkin number two overall in 2004. Then a guy you might have heard of, Sidney Crosby, number one overall in 2005. The last team, you heard Barry Melrose mention Winnipeg. The last team to go winless in 19 straight, the Winnipeg Jets, way back in 1993-94. The Sabres play the Flyers again tomorrow. And what's funny is, last part of this story, the NHL's trade deadline is April 12th. And Buffalo is expected to unload talent in an effort to collect draft capital. What talent? What talent are you unloading off a team that has an 18-game losing streak or winless streak or whatever the hell you want to call it? Who exactly are you getting rid of (laughs) that's going to get you draft capital? Sabres are 6-23-5. Dead last in the NHL with 17 points. 11 fewer than any other team. They they have a goal differential of minus 51. I told you. Not just bad. Historically bad. And last night might have been the worst gut punch of them all because they blew a 3-0 lead in the third period. Poor Buffalo. All right, don't forget. Tonight, two more games. The final two games of the Elite Eight. Two more teams. The final two teams will punch their tickets to the final four. We have both games, all the action right here. Westwood One's coverage begins at 7 o'clock. First game, Gonzaga-USC to determine the West Region champ. And then the East Region final between Michigan. Oh, that's right, UCLA. I still can't believe UCLA has gotten this far in the tournament. I really can't. As I mentioned earlier, I like Gonzaga and Michigan to both move on. 
So we will have three number ones and a number two in the final four, if my predictions are correct. Tune in tonight and find out. Again, coverage begins at 7 o'clock. All right. Show's over. We're done. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. And see you back here tomorrow morning, 7 a.m. sharp. This is the Morning Rush. I am Tony C. And I am done. Ah, I see you.